We begin with the letter A. A is for... M is for murder. E is for... Danger! And, uh... Dodge. With... Monster. Help! Love me and be... Please! Help! Yeah. And welcome back to another episode of the Is For Podcast. I am your host for this evening, Danger. Uh, it's not a dangerous show unless you're listening to it with sparklers in your ears, which is a weird thing to do. But anyway, I'm joined by uh, E, who calls himself the voted sexiest man alive. But I would beg to differ, but I'm not going to beg. We're just going to differ. Sarge? Out it. What's more dangerous than sparklers in your ears? M80s in your hand. Well, that's true. It's true. What about M80s in your ears? I don't know. That's just that's just dumb. M80s and other orifices. We're danger and Sarge, not dumb and danger. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, and, let's let, let's just make it a drinking game. Every time we say the word "and," you have to take a drink. No, <laughs> monster. <laughs> His joining us in his bright orange attire tonight. He's bright orange like he's highlighted because he's very important. I love the color orange. I approve of his wardrobe. I don't have anything against the color orange. It's actually all red. It's just the lighting. Um, but You're appearing orange to me. Either way, I'm bringing caution to this show. You are. You are. <laughs> Somebody needs to. All right. Tonight, we have gotten to the letter M, and M is for... Mars Attacks. Sarge, tell me your feelings about the movie Mars Attacks. As a set hire comedy movie, when you take physics and throw physics out the window, when you take all sorts of creative liberties, it is a fantastic, I'm drunk, let's watch a movie. Mm -hmm. Okay. Monster? Thoughts? Feelings? Well, let me start with my favorite quote from the film. <laughs> Which means we come in peace, according to the movie. <laughs> it wasn't just the dove. So this is one of those movies. I, I've always loved Tim Burton. I've always loved some of the, the cast members. But this is one that when I first saw it, I didn't get it. I didn't understand. And as I've gotten older and I've gotten a new found love of classic cinema i get it yeah i don't know that it always nails what it's going for but i get where he's coming from and i think it's really good i, I really this this is a fun one that i revisit every so often and every time i do i like it a little bit more yeah it's one of those movies that you you catch an extra joke you see an extra thing that you missed and and i i love this movie you know uh, what do I think of this movie? I think this movie is great. I, like you, Monster, didn't get it the first time I saw it. I mean, it came out in 96. I think I probably saw it in like 98, 99. Mm -hmm. It just didn't click. But as I've, you know, watched more, read more, and lived more, and just understand satire more, mm -hmm. I, I kind of fall into the same boat as Sarge, uh, between you two, actually, that it is a great just get drunk, laugh, and have fun movie, but also at the same time, I thoroughly love that it's just poking fun of 50s sci-fi movies, and it's great. It's great. I mean, as I watch it lately, and I think I've watched it in the past year or so, right? I think it came on 
I'm going to say like Turner Classic Movies or something. I forget what it came on. But anyways, I sat down and I watched it. And I was like, you know what? This is like that movie called Don't Look Up. You guys see that on Netflix? I saw part of it. I kind of lost interest in it about halfway through. Yeah, I never watched way, it, but I saw the, previous. The way the government works is perfectly outlined and the stupidity that they have is perfectly outlined in Mars Attacks. That's just my opinion on it. When I watch it, I'm like, yeah, I could totally see him doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've you've had more inner working dealings with uh, the government than we have, but there seems to be a place where they're trying to make friends, but then they're also trying to kill it, or or the you know the the general craving violence and yell and kill it, basically. <laughs> also, I, I was watching some some clips and some reviews and stuff, kind of preparing for the episode, and I saw a lot of things talking about kind of like where they felt like you've got all th- this great cast and all these opportunities for comedy and excitement and it falls flat. But again, this is a satire. This is a parody of a film. Yeah. Michael J. Fox and Martin short are being very stiff and quirky, uh, counterintuitive to their typical acting style, but that's on purpose. Like, because this is supposed to feel like a weird 1950s invasion of the body snatchers, them, the thing from another planet kind of film. And and that just goes back to, like I said, when I first saw it, when I was, you know, close to the time it came out, I would have only been, I would have been like a teenager. I didn't get it. Like I too thought some of it was boring and the effects were weird and whatever. I know in the nineties, Sarge was already in his thirties, but <laughs> for me, I wasn't familiar with the films from the fifties yet. <laughs> you know, can you, can, can you kiss Danger's ass a little bit more, you little round nose after watching clips to be ready for this episode? I'm sorry. I, I appreciate that monster prepared <laughs> six minutes, six minutes ago before we hit record. So said, I don't even know what the hell we're talking about. Now I'm going to eat not. peanuts the whole time we talk. It's, look, look, I didn't even get a chance to take a shower after martial arts. I'm sitting here with freaking Matt sweat going on right now. Trust me. We know this is like 4d technology. I, I, I caught the whiff. I can smell you through <laughs> something happening or maybe it's just me. I don't know, but, I appreciate you, Monster, knowing about this movie and having prepared for it, Sarge. I I appreciate your honesty. Yes, your honesty. <laughs> Thank you, Monster. I was having trouble finding the correct correct way to get there, but That's what I'm here for. But you did it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sarge. I appreciate the fact that you went in with. Uh, no knowledge of what we were even doing, what letter we were on. <laughs> and I knew I knew we were on the letter M. And then as soon as you said we're doing Mars attacks, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen, I've seen the movie. We're good. And I appreciate your uh, lackadaisical attitude that involves peanuts <laughs> tonight. <laughs> so, all right, let's jump into Mars attacks. And I, I think there's a few there's a few things that surprised me. Okay, so I did watch this about a week ago. Just to, you know, because I wanted to again, but just to kind of get a refresher on a lot of it after, you know, uh, researching and finding out a lot of this stuff, it made watching it, you know, quite different, of course. All right. So in 85, a gentleman by the name of Alex Cox, uh, writer, producer, you know, just kind of a uh, a guy. You guys are laughing at the guy's last name. I mean, come on. Come on. 
I was fine until I looked at him. As soon as I saw Sarge laughing, that's when I lost it. All right. Cool. Um, Sarge, how many peanuts did you eat? Was it around 15 or 16? Because that's the age you have to be to laugh at a last name like Cox. I don't know. I asked my kids to bring me up a bowl of peanuts. All right. So he wrote three drafts trying to pitch this this idea, but just couldn't get anywhere. And then Alex Jims came along in 93 and came up with his own idea for the movie. He did not realize that on the back of the cards were stories outlining what was going on on the card that he could have used. But then he thought, oh, well, I'm going to just kind of roll with it. So then he uh, went on over to his buddy, Tim Burton, and he actually pitched both ideas, Mars Attacks and Dinosaurs Attack. You guys remember the Dinosaurs Attacks cards? Okay. No. Okay. The Dinosaurs Attacks cards were a lot like the Mars Attacks cards. Yeah. Just uh, before you go any further, let's clarify. Oh, there right. was a series of cards called Mars Attacks. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I uh, I think I had you got excited. You I got think excited. I had it at some point in my notes and in editing it before we sat down. I just kind of got rid of that part. But yes. Yeah, was, not uh, important. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Tops. Tops. Bottoms. What? So, which one are you, Danger? <laughs> Continue. He's the guy in the chair. <laughs> chair corner, you pick. Oh. But all right, so Mars Attacks was a a set of cards released by Tops in uh, the um, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, but it was pretty much just got a ba- lot of backlash. Like as soon as they were pitched, because they were like super violent, and so were the Dinosaurs Attacks cards. Super violent. If you guys can ever find any of them, you'll get a kick out of the dinosaurs attacks. You know, I'm saying that because we know Mars attacks, obviously from the movie now. So, but this was in uh, 1993, and what was coming out right, right at that time? Oh. Jurassic Park. And they both decided that it was going to be too similar to Jurassic Park, and thought, let's go Mars attacks, not dinosaurs attacks. So. There's actually a couple things that other movies had influence on this movie, as we will we will get to. Monster, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go ahead and give you a heads up. We are going to talk about one of your favorite directors. Mm-mm, if you bring bit. up that back, Roland Emmerich, I'm going to throw my computer out the window. We're okay. going to bring him up. Independence Day is garbage. No, I no. won't stand for this. I'm not going to like support the movie i'm just going to bring him up sorry go ahead so i'm looking at these um dinosaur attack cards right and i'm honestly i might spend a hundred bucks to get an entire unopened box go for it i mean it's like that it's got this like dinosaur like dudes jumping out of a building it's on fire yeah he's jumping on the top of a dinosaur with spikes all over its back i don't know (laughs) what type of dinosaur this is it's not a stegosaurus mind you like there's one woman that's like impaled through it and other dudes got one through his, his Heart and he's on fire. Oh, this is great. Oh, yeah. This yeah, is, these are beautiful. <laughs> oh, yeah. Super what, violent and super fun. One other thing I was going to bring up, and not to get ahead of the conversation a little Let's bit, but I think part of the reason that Mars Attacks fell a little bit flat when it came out, and I think it did for all of us too, is because I've always said the 30 year cycle. I've always said that things like the nostalgia really pops off. And if you look back at in history with cinema, there was a huge boom in the 80s 
for remakes of the 50s. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Blob, uh, Night of the Comet. They had all these films that paid homage to the 50s. Mars Attacks was just a little bit too late. People were over it. And that, I think, was part of the problem. Yep. Sarge, you going to go for it? I love Sorry. it. He's holding up a Dinosaur's Attacks. Sarge and it looks awesome. On Dinosaur's Attacks. Yeah, I'm surprised you guys never knew about that. About no, never. So, so what a lot of people don't realize, I grew up in a military family. So, in the 1940s, shut up. So, a good portion of my childhood was actually living in foreign countries. Like, I lived in Izmir, Turkey. I, I thought you were going to say living with dinosaurs. <laughs> no. So, like in in the 90s, I was at my dad was stationed overseas in Turkey, and I lived over there in in, in Istanbul and Izmir, Israel, like stuff like that. So a lot of this stuff, like this 90s stuff, is I had to watch it when my grandfather would take VHS tapes and record TV mm-hmm. and send it to us. Yep. So as you, a as a kid that. who was like deep into 90s like culture, I don't remember dinosaur attacks cards. <laughs> and and I even had like X-Men cards and Star Wars cards. Like I collected a ton of like basketball and football cards, but I had like pop culture stuff too. And somehow the Mars attacks and the dinosaur attacks cards, they missed me. They look awesome. You guys will have to look at what the years uh, dinosaurs attacks came out. I did nothing uh, as far as research goes on dinosaurs attacks because this is Mars attacks, not dinosaurs. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So Tim Burton at the, the point that Jim's was pushing this towards him was making Ed Wood. And he believed it would be a perfect opportunity to pay homage to Ed Wood, um, especially uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space and other 1950s uh, yes, science fiction movies. So I feel like if you're going into uh, somebody with the status of Tim Burton, if you're going into it with like, okay, that's what we're going to make, go for it. Let's have fun. And that's exactly what he did, and I appreciate it. So, Burton got a meeting with Time Warner, or excuse me, not Time Warner, with Warner Brothers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I need faster internet now, damn it! And he actually brought in his collection of Mars Attacks cards to the pitch to, you know, to get it up and going. And then, of course, they said, um, okay, after seeing the script that Jim's completed in 1994, and they budgeted uh, $60 million. The studio did not want to bu- do any more than $60 million, but Burton and Jim's went, yeah, it's going to be more than that. And so <laughs> they made cuts you know, here and there. Yeah. And Warner Brothers wanted Burton to do closed captioning subtitles on the Martian, the aliens dialogue, which he, being good at his, at his job at this <laughs> point in time, resisted that that notion, which was a great choice because nobody wanted to know what they were saying and having the translator in the, in the movie made it more fun. And besides how clearly can you say, like everybody knows what that means. Right. I mean, having the subtitles translated for a a fake language or a fictitious language is something like Mel Brooks would do. I would expect Mel Brooks to do something like that, not Tim Burton. Right. That would be like him subtitling Batman because we all know how Batman is. I love the bat. I love Tim Burton Batman. I, I Michael Keaton's my favorite Batman. Just, just saying, Michael Preach, Keaton's a, sister, preach. Yeah, He's Keaton's coming back in the next Batman. The next Flash. 
Oh yeah. In the flat. He's yeah, okay. So some of the cities that were deleted from the screenplay to help lower that budget were the marshes attacking China, the Philippines as a whole, no certain city in in uh <laughs> in the Philippines, Japan, Europe, Africa, India, and Russia. Only leaving Paris and the Taj Mahal. And there is the one where um aliens uh do come in and shoot the leading tower of Pisa and then uh it's like like going back and forth with flying saucer, like trying to like make it swash a bunch of people. But anyway. Alright. So now, Monster. Jim said in an interview, bear in mind this was way before Independence Day was written. We had things like Manhattan being destroyed, the White House went down, so did the Empire State Building. Warner Brothers figured all this would be too expensive, so we cut most of that to reduce our cost. The differences between March Attacks and Independence Day, Jim said, Independence Day is more like a movie called Failsafe, and Mars Attacks is like Doctor Strangelove. In both movies, <laughs> in both films, had a similar story, but with different tones. Of course, Dean Devlin and uh, Roland Emmerich, your, your lord and savior, your hero, uh, mm-hmm. monster, um, of course, <laughs> they they put uh, a more serious tone with Independence Day. Than, Did uh, they? Yeah, a little bit. Did they? A little bit. Did they? Is, is that more, really a more, more serious, serious tone? tone? It, the more serious tone, if you don't take it serious, that's completely on you. <laughs> Remember when the dog jumped away from the CG fire? Yeah, yeah. So Much more serious. Emmerich said in an interview with The Guardian, um, I said to Dean, we can't do our film after parody comes out. We had to beat Burton to it. If it came out on July 4th weekend... We would beat Mars Attacks, which was coming out in August. So we wrote the concept around the release date. Then Dean said, we'll just call it Independence Day. We'll come up with something better later. I I will beat him mercifully. I, I hate that guy. Roland Emmerich is a hack. So not to get off topic here, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't think I've ever seen this side of Monster. I think he may have a problem with this Roland Emmerich guy. I can't figure it out yet. I can't like I can't put my finger on it. There's something that Monster don't like. About I've always it. thought that Monster liked him. And I know, now, right? BFFs. And then now we're seeing anger from him. I will leave. Was it I a bad leave, breakup? No, he's just he, he just never he returned might be the worst director I've ever seen. Everything he makes is boom, boom, explosion, neat, meaningless that's dialogue. A Jerry, that's a Jerry Brockheimer film. I'm not a big fan of his either. I'm just saying. I'm with you on I'm with you on that one, Monster. But so Roland here's Emmerich the thing: is a genius. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 no! I will not stand. I will not stand by. Well, good thing you're sitting. That's true. That is oh, that is atrocious. Um, no, look, I've I've not made it a secret. I'm not a big fan of great big budget explodey films that's never been my cup of tea and what roland emmerich did was appeal to the lowest common denominator time and time again to make these big budget flashy explodey films that are pointless what tim burton tried to do again did he succeed that's up to you was parody Not really even parody, but pay homage to a genre of film from the 50s that no longer existed in the the 90s landscape. 
Roland Emmerich thought he was being like clever and impressive, but Tim Burton was like, this is cheesy and we're going to be cheesy about it. See, Roland well, Emmerich. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. You're good. You're good. Uh, well, I mean, it's like, well, two, two things first, you know, back then, like Roland Emmerich and a bunch of other people were still, they found out what works in a movie and they just beat it with the dead horse. We've already discussed this. It was the recipe at the time. I mean, look, look how many Fast and Furious movies there are. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You just said they beat it with a dead, dead horse. horse. Yeah. So I have this. Like, they had the horse by the foot, and they're beating the they're beating the movies with it. That's what they're doing. Look, I know I got it wrong. But that I makes me like it. it better. No, I like <laughs> right? that better. I, I, I'm going to use that. I like the beating it with a dead horse. Me too. So, and, and yes, Tim Burton has always taken a movie and done something special with it. The original, you know, you know, like the Batman movies, the Edward Scissorhands, you know, stuff like that. He's always done it. Right, so, so that's the first thing. Yep. And, and the second thing, paying homage to things that really don't exist anymore that existed. It's like our podcast that we're doing now that if you go to podbean.com slash danger sarge, you get a free month. Make sure you read the terms and conditions, okay? That way you can't come back on us. They do that's, apply. Yep, that's that's podbean.com slash danger sarge. All right. That's what you gotta do. But this medium we're doing now, I mean, if we were to like tell a story, this would be like the early nineteen hundreds, nineteen tens, nineteen twenties. People would get on the air and they would have like a show. See, I was actually thinking about for a scene where there's a horse of doing like coconuts on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, All right. Sorry. Uh, off topic. Back to you, Dave. Slide whistle. I'll get one of those. And yeah. All right. So let's talk about the cast. Now, do you guys remember who it was that played two roles in the cast? I do. Who? Monster who? Jack Nicholson. Right. So Jack Nicholson actually signed on to this movie without reading the script because he enjoyed working with Burton on Batman. And before Jack Nicholson came on, they couldn't get actors to take it serious. They couldn't get serious actors to look twice at the script. But then once Jack Nicholson came on, other actors went, oh, wait a second. This this might be something good. And okay, after so Jack Nicholson signed on. Every actor said, sure. Right. Uh, he was like the golden boy back in the 90s. He was. And so there's a couple thoughts from Jim's and Burton as to why that happened. And the big reason is because every time the script got sent out to uh, to agents and stuff, agents wouldn't get their people to sign their, their, you know, their clients to, you know, go forward with it because they didn't want their clients to die so quickly early or in a stupid cartoonish way. Yep. And but then once Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson got on, everybody went, okay, yeah, we want to do this. It's kind of yep. like Harvey Keitel in, in uh Reservoir Dogs and got, Yes, good got good one. And, whatnot, so. and and I don't know, maybe you have this later and I, I hope I'm not stealing Danger Thunder here. But won't one of the, the things no, it won't be the last. Nope. Um one of the things that I, I saw was that the reason Nicholson plays two characters is because they didn't yep, want him I, to I do have this. Oh, keep going. Keep going. No, no, no. I'm invested. Let's... My lips are sealed. Continue danger, please. All right. Monster, monster, go on, go on, <laughs> go on. Well, I just heard that the studio didn't want one of their A-list actors to die off too early or like you said, in a cartoony fashion. 
So Tim Burton said, all right, in that case, I will give this hugely popular Jack Nicholson two roles and kill them both. <laughs> because that's the kind of guy Tim Burton is. So, oh, he got more screen time. So true, actually, true. Almost, not quite, almost. So, Please, yeah. So Jet Nicholson said he would actually play every character in the movie after reading the script because he loved it that much. <laughs> but I didn't know that. But you know, his agent said you can't kill our A-list actor, and so didn't he didn't kill uh, both the characters? Only killed one of them, and. So he was able to kind of get around it with that, but um, you know, he he killed one of them early on. I think it was Artie Lang was uh was the the um casino guy, and uh, actually for that, which I have this further down in my notes, but for that scene, do you guys remember how the whole thing happened? How his character that character died? Not top of my head. It's been a hot so, minute. Yeah, been a minute. So he's having a board meeting, trying to sell the casino and you know get investors. And then um, he has a big window behind him, and behind him, flying saucers are just coming in, and all the people looking at him are you know are facing him or looking out the window. And then uh, then he turns around and he's like, "Oh shit, there's a there's, something's happening," and. Then aliens uh, fire upon the casino and down goes the casino. And they actually used a real um, demolition of a casino from the 70s. They actually used footage for that. So, cool. The um, Oceans, I want to say it's Oceans 11. I want to say it's Oceans 11. The, they used a real casino being, uh, being demolished in that movie yep. as well. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it was cool. Oceans 11. So, all right. So the rest of the first family, uh, Glenn Close was the first lady, Marsha Dale. <laughs> also up for the role was Meryl Streep, Diane Keaton, and Stocking Stockard Channing. Uh, Natalie Portman played their daughter, Taffy Dale. And this was Natalie Portman's first science fiction movie. Do you know what her next movie was? Also a science fiction movie. It was one of like one of the best movies ever made. It's up there with Independence Day. Lord, I hate you so much. It's the Phantom Minutes. I will punch you. It is. So, all right. Annette Benning as Barbara Land. Um, and Susan Sarandon was originally cast, but then she dropped out without, you know, no nothing about why. It's uh, just Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Uh Pierce Brosnan as Professor uh, Professor. Don Professor, uh, Donald Kessler, because how would you spell that? Fe- professor, <laughs> shut up. That's how you spell it. All right. And Danny DeVito was cast as the rude gambler. Now, something I think was interesting about that. So Danny DeVito has billing above the title in most post most posters, uh, DVD covers, promotional artwork. He plays a character that is unnamed in the script. And has uh, half a dozen lines and approximately on screen for one and a half minutes. <laughs> and that's it. See, so, whenever I hear Danny DeVito and Tim Burton get together, I swear whenever Danny DeVito answers the phone, it's like, hey, I'm your agent. Tim Burton wants you for a movie. I swear Danny DeVito goes, let me get my top hat. Well, when Tim Burton calls Johnny Depp's agent, his first question is Helena Bottom Carter in it. Because... <laughs> They're in all, but they're not at this one. All right, Martin Short. No, as, they're not. No, they're None not. of them are. Martin Short as press secretary Jerry Ross. One of his best roles. 
I love I love everything Martin Short does. So Sergio Parker Parker as uh, Natalie Lane, um, Michael J. Fox as Jason Stone. Now, speaking of Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp turned down this role. His like he got ah. passed his agent, and Johnny Depp still turned it down. And this because actually, Helena Bottom Carter's not in it, right? Fair enough. And this is the last movie that Michael J. Fox was in um, until 2014. He did TV, he did voiceover, but you actually see a little bit of his Parkinson's coming in. Yeah, with, right before he dies, and the uh, the editor in the movie right before he dies in the movie. Yeah, and the editors <laughs> were right. I, I didn't. He's not dead in real life. So I just anyway. I just don't want you to say it and jinx it, and then it falls back on us later. Uh, okay, fair enough. So editors were able to kind of uh, put that in as him just being afraid of Martians landing. Uh, so, all right, Tom Jones as himself. And Tim Burton actually went to a Tom Jones show and then went backstage because Tim Burton, he was able to, and he asked him to be in his movie personally. And then Tom Jones... Uh, he said, I want to do it. If my backup singers, uh, Danielle Porter, uh, Christy Black, and Sharon Hendricks could be his backup singers in the movie. This That was his stipulation to appearing in the movie. Such a, such a difficult, difficult thing to accommodate. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, so Lucas Haas as Richie Norris, Jim Brown as Byron Williams, Lisa Marie as the Marsha girl, and uh, Lisa Marie... Um, had to be sewn into her Martian girl costume every day uh, they filmed it because they wanted it to be as smooth and seamless as possible. So no zippers, nothing. Pam Greer as Louise Williams and Tim Burton actually personally called Pam Greer and asked her to come out to Los Angeles to audition for the movie. She would not leave her dog that was terminally ill and dying. And so after several calls, Tim Burton actually called her and said, Hey, so we're going to go ahead and give you the part because you have auditioned because you didn't leave your dog and your character <laughs> in the movie <laughs> will not leave her son. So it worked out to her advantage. So uh, Jack Black as Billy Glenn Norris uh, and Christina Applegate. And I, I've completely missed Christina Applegate in the movie. So um, now do you guys know who did the voice over work of the Martians? Monster, we've actually mentioned his name in previous episodes. Sarge, you were not in the Captain Planet episode. But I oh, no. wasn't. No. I wasn't. No. It was Frank Walker. What? It was Frank, Frank Walker. Walker. Yeah, yes. that was actually... Oh, God. I yeah. wish you would have gave me a chance to guess, because that was my guess. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, now, Frank Walker did the voiceover of the aliens, the Akak. Um, and ak, ak, ak. Roger L. Jackson actually did the voiceover for the translator, but Roger L. Jackson wasn't really well known at this point. But he was the he was the cheaper of the Samuel L. Jacksons. They had to go with Roger L. Jackson. Right, <laughs> right. So uh this actually got him the audition as uh the uh the phone call for Ghostface in the Scream franchise. And he's actually been Ghostface, uh the voice of. Wow. Yeah. Nice. That's, That's a cool accomplishment. Yeah, fun, fun. So, all right. Now, that is the uh, production, the lead up to, and whatnot. I really just kind of want to hit on a few scenes of the movie. Not going to go through the entire plot of the movie. And going to kind of just roll through it. So, all right. I love the beginning, the opening of the movie. Um, 
I don't know if you remember Monster or Sarge, but I um, do. <laughs> yeah, uh, old redneck pulls up on a tractor like to an Asian guy. He's like, "Is it Filipino New Year? You having a barbecue?" <laughs> and it's just a whole bunch of cows on fire running over a hill. <laughs> and so, oh, back when you could be racist in movies, and it was fine. <laughs> Um, you can be. It's just you have to meet certain parameters first. That's that's true. So, are we talking about being racist toward the cows? As I, <laughs> I assumed it. We don't a, know how they identify. That's true. Well, they're all flaming. That's that's true. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, moving on. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, yep. All right. So, movie kind of flashes around from DC where. Uh, Pam Greer and the kids are to uh, Vegas uh, to, yeah, just kind of goes back and forth. Sorry. Aliens invade. They, yes, they do. Yeah. They take over the TV and uh, it, he does this on the, you know, the big circle with his finger and, it, and um, the donut shop worker um, uh, what's his face? Uh, Richie. Sorry. And, uh, Richie's like, he made the international sign of the donut. It's like, no, you stupid idiot. He just made a <laughs> He's circle. He's obsessed with yeah. donuts. <laughs> Which, actually, something that was cut from the movie was where, uh, before, uh, like, at this point in the movie, uh, the Martian actually um, ignited a globe <laughs> of the Earth. <laughs> and so it was like, the audience all knew it was not going to go well. So, anyway. The, uh, uh Sergius Parker and uh, Michael J. Fox's characters try to uh, capitalize on what's going on by meeting up with the White House's um, scientist. And uh, then uh, Sergius Parker and Pierce Brosnan hit it off a little bit. And then it goes all staticky. Um, and then that's when you see the, the marshes come in. So then everybody is racing towards the aliens actually landing. Now, Monster, I know that we have actually mentioned this guy in the past. I, I forget if it's conversations that we've had side or if it's actually been on here, but the aliens actually, the Martians actually landed in Prahrup. And that's actually the pronunciation of it. I found that out from a truck driver. I talked to him once on the phone. Prahrup, Nevada. Do you know? I who, thought it was Prahrup. It's, it's actually pronounced Prahrup. As, I believe yeah. you. I yeah, believe you. That, that's how the locals actually pronounce it. So anyway, do you know who else is from this, uh, this location there in, in Nevada? Anybody like Sarge, if you know, cool. Well, I, was, yeah. I was in a band with a guy who was from that town. Yeah. <laughs> True um, story. Mr. Art Bell. And for those of you who don't know who Art Bell is, Monster, why don't you fill us in on who Art Bell is? Art Bell is on a short list of the greatest men to ever exist. He hosted wow. the he hosted the absolutely wonderful late night talk show on the radio, coast to coast AM. Um, what a treasure. <laughs> I love that guy. And for those of you that don't know what coast to coast is radio show, talk radio show dealing with uh, aliens, uh, alien abductions, alien sightings, things like that. And other, and other supernatural conspiracy things. theories. Paranormal. Yeah. The stuff that makes monster horny. Yep, more or less. <laughs> I feel bad for your wife. Yep, yep. <laughs> All right. When the Martians, you know, come down and land, uh, the translator uh, machine isn't quite working. And it, the guy kind of pounds on a little bit there. And 
and eventually, you know, after a few acacks and and all, <laughs> the the translator, which even watching this when I was younger, when for the first time, I thought, what do they have to base this on as far as its accuracy? It said, "We come in peace," and then the uh, hippie in the crowd's like, "They come in peace," and releases a dove, and then the dove flies out, and then they shoot the dove. They kill a dove, vaporizing it in the air, and it falls to the ground, and then the uh, aliens go about um, killing everybody. Now, do you guys remember the color of the ray gun, you know, the, the rays coming out, and the color of the skeletons? Green ray guns, red skeletons. Almost. Some are red, some are green. Whatever. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but do you know why they were red and green? Nope. Don't ask Monster. He's going to get even more defiant. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. So uh, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin were wrong because the movie was originally slated for a Christmas release. And so. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. they can't be why. Yes, 100%. Oh my God. Yeah, That's crazy talk. Yeah. And so the producers actually wanted to use the heat ray sound effect from War of the Worlds. But Paramount Pictures turned them down from getting in sound and because there's a a patent or a trademark on that sound. And so they weren't able to do it. Warner Brothers was um, out of luck for that. So after all of this, everybody's just kind of dealing with what's happened. And one of the scenes was actually one of the scenes is actually cut from an early an early uh, version of the script. Uh, first draft was uh, reporters trying to piece together what had been going on on TV and you can't put that on TV. <laughs> you can't put right, right. skeletons and things on TV. So anyway, so after all this happens, the, uh, the government's going back and forth as you were talking about Sarge trying to figure out, uh, in their stupid way of how do they go about taking care of this? Well, Mr. Horndog, Martin short press secretary. <laughs> um, he's seen earlier in the movie with hookers Right. He uh he rolls through in the uh the uh the circle driveway whatever of the White House and he sees a Martian girl. The only time Lisa Marie is on screen, like she has no other roles in the movie, just this one one clip. But there are so many celebrities in this movie, so many like actors of note that have very small short screen time, like Danny DeVito having a minute and a half of screen time that I mentioned before. All right. Lisa Marie said about the whole Martian girl thing in 2015. I mean, it was instant torture. I have a scar from the wig. I have a hole in my head from that damn wig. She was not happy about it. Who um, was that? That was Lisa Marie married to Michael Jackson for a hot minute. Lisa. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Uh, for whatever reason, danger is leaving off the most important part of Presley. her name. Presley. Lisa Marie. Elvis's daughter. Yes. Lisa Sorry. Marie. Lisa Marie Presley. Um, anyway. The, uh, She's dead. Is she? Did she die? Sure. For all intents and purposes. I don't care if she passes away. Yeah, I don't I don't care if she's alive or dead, but I didn't know she died. Anyway, so it was two wigs put together to get it to be so big um, to cover up the uh, the helmet of the, uh, the Martians. And uh, it was actually made from real human hair. Now, I couldn't find exactly how much it weighed, but it weighed um, so much that Lisa Marie could not move her head side to side, you know, in any direction. Otherwise, she would just lose how, like, lose her balance <laughs> and fall over. 
But the Marsha girl never blinks once. If you watch the movie, uh, you'll never see her blink because she don't. She don't blink. She no blinky. She don't blink. <laughs> the uh, the Marsha girl image was modeled after a Mars Attacks card, Marilyn Monroe and Jane Fonda and Barbarella. All those things together were used to um, to create this this mm. image of this. The way she girl. moves, that yeah. that stiffness has that vampirella kind yeah. of vibe about it it's stiffness but it flows you know what i mean like yeah she yeah. kind of glides yeah. forward but very rigid glide that's the word yes yeah that 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 simple word that neither one of us could come up with uh, <laughs> we got there so there was a cut scene during this from the first script where she actually kills a secret service agent as she's making her way through the White House to kill the president, but then that actually started the event, uh, the the uh, series of events and things. Aside from the uh, Marsha girl going after the president, actually getting into the president's room, and then causing chaos. And <laughs> yeah, so the world has been torn apart by the Martians. Martian girl, Martian woman has made it into the uh, the president's chambers, and things are not going well. So the president makes his way to a bunker where the other generals and things are leaving his wife behind, his wife and child behind, you know, no! back in the white house, which Glenn Close has one of the, or the only from what I could find aside from Artie Lang that, uh, or Jack Nicholson that died in the, uh, the aliens taking out the casino. She has the only other death that's not by Ray gun in the white house. And it's when, um, She's standing beneath a chandelier that she sees cracking. <laughs> oh, and yeah. The chandelier actually falls and crushes her. And I laughed when I saw it because it's so obvious that it's not her. It's just it. And it just kind of poked at the 50s well, sci-fi thing more. So that's what I was going to say. What I thought was funny was that in the 1950s, obviously, you didn't have the digital effects that you had in the 90s and 2000s. but you had a whole lot of guys in rubber suits. Like that was kind of the go-to and to pay homage to the fifties in a nineties film, instead of Burton going that route and putting a bunch of big brained, weird looking things in rubber suits, he used that like already starting to get dated CG effects that they had. And, and, And that almost adds to the charm. Like, Oh yeah. As a practical effect guy, I could see the fun in putting a bunch of people in rubber suits, but I also think that the way it has aged, the digital effects have aged, also works for what he was going for. Oh, yeah. So if I get this right, another thing I've learned about Monster, he likes seeing guys in rubber suits. This is the wrong letter M for you, my friend. (laughs) Between... It's for masochists? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. All right. So, president's in a bunker, and I don't know if you remember his general and how his general died. It was also <laughs> it was also not by ray gun, but his general is like goes up to the Martian uh, ambassador that's like made his way into the president's bunker and starts just berating him. He does get hit by a ray gun. But it doesn't kill him. It just shrinks him. It makes him smaller and smaller and smaller. And then he also gets smashed beneath the Martian ambassador's boot. Yep. 
So we're going to jump to to the end. Now, do you guys remember how they found how the Martians died? Like, oh, who was singing? Well, oh my hold God. on, hold on. So the grandmother, who, by the way, I did skip over this, laughed hysterically when um, all of Congress <laughs> was <laughs> that, just so, obliterated. Vaporized that might TV. that might actually be my favorite quote from the movie. They blew up Congress, and <laughs> she just dies laughing. Oh yeah, it it was it was a great moment. And then I kind of wish somebody did a TARS. But anyway. Hey! <laughs> I was say, it was funny then. It'd be funny yeah. now. Yeah. You just got to be careful saying it. I said it. So, Do yeah. we really? I don't know. I... Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was when the uh, the marshes were using um, overkill, basically, on Grandma. She was just sitting there listening to her music on her headphones and they brought in this enormous gun on wheels <laughs> behind yes. her, and they put it like right up against her head. And I forget if it was one of them tripped over it or something, but one of them tripped or pulled or got yes. caught on the cord for her headphones. <laughs> and then they started to extend her, their face shield started to crack and explode because Slim Whitman's Indian love call was playing. <laughs> and if you've never heard it, it's terrible. It's just <laughs> terrible. But the high pitched sound of it. <laughs> immediately made them like start to like, like their brains start convulsing and, you know, and then the heads exploded inside of it. And so then this was put out. To everybody across the country, this is how the Martians are defeated. And so cars were driving around, playing Slim Whitman out their speaker, and Martians' heads were exploding everywhere. But something about Slim Whitman that involves Howard Stern. <laughs> Do you guys know how this happened? I knew nothing about this before. No. So, before you ask the question. Yeah, I'm about ready to say, I'm drawing a blank no. here. Yep. So, uh... All right. So Howard Stern said he finally watched the film after it was released on video. He was surprised at the similarities of the end of the movie to his own work. He said that during his first week on air at WNBC in 1982, he and his co-worker at the time, Fred Norris, had created and aired a segment entitled Slim Whitman versus the Midget Aliens from Mars. Stern produced and rebroadcast this as proof. The bit depicted Slim Whitman singing as a weapon against invading aliens, which rendered the planet a wasteland. It's the same. I want credit, said Stern. It's a weird coincidence, and it freaked me out. Now, years later, Stern had Tim Burton on a show. He told Burton what had happened, what he created in the early 80s, and Burton immediately responded, Wow, you should have sued me. <laughs> you know, and and with that kind of response, I think you can clearly know that that Burton didn't steal it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. to respond that way, right. like if he were to respond with some sort of coy, like "Oh wow, what a coincidence," then you yep. would be suspicious. But to respond that way, yeah, he that was just a crazy happenstance, right? So, all right. Slim Whitman kills the aliens, and then the movie ends with Tom Jones singing, It's Not Unusual. Not unusual to be loved. 
So, now we talked about how Warner Brothers wanted to keep the budget at uh, $60 million. And then Burton actually originally pitched um, after Nightmare on M Street, or not Nightmare on M Street, um, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, <laughs> he wanted to use stop motion for the aliens. But also... I would have loved that. <laughs> well, also at this time, Industrial Light and Magic was blowing up because of mm-hmm. Jurassic Park. And so... Uh, the uh, so Warner Brothers went to Industrial Light and Magic, and then they showed how they could do the aliens. But he wanted he still wanted them done in a stop motion form, and so they kind of merged the two. Instead okay. of instead of really throwing up the budget from sixty million to an estimated hundred million with stop motion, they actually kind of landed right in the middle at eighty. Well, that was good because the film only made like hundred ten million worldwide. Well, um, oh, I was going to guess less than that. <laughs> Well, the movie was released in the U.S. December 13th, 1996, and then uh, worldwide, or in the U.K., February 28th, uh, 1997. So, screw you, Roland Emmerich, Emmerich with thinking it's coming out in August. <laughs> it came out in December. <laughs> All right. It actually ended up being a budget of $70 million. They were able to kind of whittle out a little bit more. The movie made $101.4 million worldwide. Uh, that was close. That was it. Yeah. How much? 101 million point, 101.4 million. That's it. I mean, it's better than some of the X-Men movies that came out. I was going to say, that's more than I thought it would, honestly. Like, I mean, I kind of remember it being a little bit of a flop when it first came out. Oh, yeah, yes. For sure. It was considered a box office bomb in the U.S., but it achieved greater success overseas. And since then, it's actually become a cult classic. I can't say that a lot of Burton's work past this has become a cult classic. Mm. I mean, I don't think a lot of his movies really made a lot of money before this. He just kind of pushed the envelope in a direction that people went, this guy's got something. Well, uh, you say that, but I I think that like the original Batman and Edward Scissorhands, like they were lower budget. So they made a bigger profit and even with like a well-known IP like Batman, there was still a Burton touch to it. Like yeah. you, you could tell. Like I, I think that between Beetlejuice and Batman and some of the other properties he had already done, I think it was kind of a hot commodity. But I do think Mars Attacks. I think the studio was thinking Mars Attacks was going to be kind of like a piece of shit Independence Day like Roland Emmerich did, like a huge summer blockbuster. And that's not what Tim Burton's known for. Well, that's not what he was known for then. Even with Batman and Batman Returns, those were still kind of weird. Obviously now with like the Alice in Wonderland and uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, like, they're banking on his name to be a yeah. summer blockbuster, but at this time, kind of in, in between. Right. The movie still. Now, before we move on. Okay. Before on. we move on, real quick. Yeah. You know, cult classics. Right. Some of these movies that bomb pretty poorly have become cult classics and even made sequels to be booted. One of them that comes to my mind is by Troy Duffy, Boondock Saints. Right. Right. It grossed, and I'm not kidding you. I just looked it up because I remembered the number in my head because we had we played a trivia game in Iraq once, and this was part of the trivia was about Boondock Saints. It made thirty one thousand dollars at the box office. Mm-hmm. Did not do well. 
It did not do well. It was only released on like 12 screens as well, wasn't it? Yeah. It's ridiculous. But it is one of those almost everybody I know has seen it. Yeah. Yeah. God tier. I mean, that's one of those films that like, if you like action movies, if you like comedies, if you like kind of left to center abstract weird movies, like Boondock Saints is up there. That's And maybe we'll do a Boondock Saints episode, but I love the first one. Oh, let's not even get into that shit again. But no. Oh, yeah. I forgot to, we did that before, didn't we? Yeah, we, we've been down that road and whatever. Um, <laughs> but what was that? Uh, shut up. So kind of similar to this, Boondock Saints is one of those movies that, okay, let's be honest. A box office, quote unquote, smash is a word of mouth thing. You see previews, people go see it. Your friends tell you, gosh, you got to go see this movie. You go see it, blah, blah, blah. If you go see a movie that's a little weird and a little abstract, takes a couple viewings to really appreciate, you're not as inclined to tell your friends, hey, you got to see this movie, you got to go watch it. And that's kind of what happened with Boondock Saints. I think it was pitched as this like action-packed, fast-paced movie, but it's a little bit more of a Quentin Tarantino slow burn kind of yeah, there's action in it, but it's kind of wacky. I think it's the kind of movie that requires two or three viewings to get into. Well, not just that, but at the time of filming, you know, the 1990s, early 2000s. So when the movie first started filming, I believe it was in 1997, you know, and, you know, Willem Dafoe took on probably one of the hardest roles of his career and I remember in an interview, he was talking about it. You know, he played a homosexual FBI agent, which back then in the 1990s, even even close to the year 2000, that was a little bit of a taboo role to try to play. I mean, remember when Tom Hanks played the guy in Philadelphia? Yeah. With yeah, that was it. He got criticized. He, <laughs> he got criticized immensely for that role. And let's be honest here. I think Willem Dafoe did a fabulous job he did he did he did a good job his his guest star appearance on the uh, family guy is one of my my favorite things now now wrap this up to get back to mars attacks Attacks, i would be more than happy to talk boondock saints and be honest about that sequel and uh the things i feel about troy duffy no no we've been there we've already gone down that road get back to to him all right so Mars Attacks does not hold good good uh, audience scores or critic scores. So on Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> it's at a 55 for uh, critics, tomato meter, 53 for audience scores. And I know, Sarge, you've talked about you don't understand them, but they basically, it's just an average of all the critics and average of audience scores. So, Monster. Critics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Monster, one of our favorite critics. Mr. Roger Ebert. Oh, oh, okay. Mr. Roger Ebert said Ed Wood himself could have told us what's wrong with this movie. <laughs> the makers felt superior to the material. To be funny, even Schlock has to believe in itself. Look for Inframan or Invasion of the Bee Girls, and you will find movies that lack stars and big pro- or big uh, budgets. And fancy special effects, but are funny and fun in a way that Burton's mega production never really understands. Put him and Emmerich on a spaceship and shoot it to the sun. 
I am sick Just of put them in a boat with a packs. hole in it and get rid of them. It ain't that hard. I mean, Roger Ebert's dead, man. Come on, guys. Well, he's dead. Yeah, I mean, technically he is. Well, then getting rid of him ain't going to be that difficult, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> and Kenneth Kenneth Turin of the Los Angeles Times said, Mars Attacks is all 1990 cynicism and disbelief mocking the conventions that Independence Day takes seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Oh, I will. Oh, who? What's his address? I'm going there. I believe it was a her. Kenneth is not a her. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> I don't think Kenneth is. Hey, whoa! It's 2023. <laughs> you watch your mouth. True. This all sounds clever enough to be uh, uh, clever enough, but in truth, Mars Attacks is not as much fun as it should be. Few of its numerous actors make a lasting impression, and Burton's heart and soul is not in the humor. <laughs> Yeah. Agree to okay. disagree. Agree to disagree. Okay, well, okay, in all fairness, when I first saw this movie, that's how I felt too. Right. I saw Martin Short. I saw Jack Nicholson. I saw the cast. I saw the vibe. And I was like, this should be hilarious. But now that I'm older and I've watched a lot of movies from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, I get it. Like okay. They're playing characters from that era. And if they were, don't get me wrong, there is a version of this film that played straight would be hilarious, but it wouldn't be paying homage to the 1950s atomic sci-fi films. You can't have your cake and eat it too. There's two different versions here. Destin Thomas of the Washington Post said, Marge Attacks evokes plenty of sci-fi classics from the day the Earth stood still to Dr. Strangelove, but it doesn't do much beyond that superficial exercise. With the exception of Burton's jolting sight gags, I may never recover from the vision of Sarah Jessica Parker's head grafted onto the body of a chihuahua. <laughs> awesome. The comedy is half-developed, pedestrian material, and the climactic battle between Earthlings and Martians is dull and overextended. So... Yes, Monster, I'm right there with you as far as when you first watched the movie, when you were younger, you um, identified with Kenneth Turin and his uh, his assessment. Um, yeah. Dessen doesn't know. What that lovely is. lady, Kenneth. Yes, that lovely lady, <laughs> Kenneth. But like you, I've watched a lot more of the schlock from the 50s and 60s and all, and it is a lot more identifiable with that. And then also, I just have a much better sense of humor now than when I was a kid. Um, some people <laughs> think I'm funny. I don't get those people thinking that, but, you know. you guys, I don't think that. Yeah, okay, cool. Thank you for being honest. Yeah, I've never I've never caught that either. Um, but but one of the things from, and, and again, not to show my nerddom too, too strong, oh, but no, like... It's just all <laughs> over the place here. Listeners need to tell. Splooge, splooge. No, okay. But a lot of those films from the 40s and 50s, especially like I love the Universal Monsters meet the Abbott and Costello films. Like those are some of my favorites. Yeah. Some of the humor in that does not play well now. Like it's it's slow, it's yeah. boring, it's so cheesy that it's not funny. But again... I think that's what Burton was going for. Like the humor doesn't always land because the films he is parroting, the humor doesn't always land. Right. And am I giving him too much credit? Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm trying to say he's smarter than he really is, but I think the people that he's paying homage to 
almost to the detriment of the film itself, he's sort of playing into that almost too much in in some places. But I think I think it's all intentional. I really do. So the Mars Attacks cards now. So the Mars Attacks cards had a bit of a resurgence after this movie, but really just kind of haven't really gone anywhere. But they are a collector's item. Tops has put forth dozens of Mars Attacks products after this movie, um, from comic card or comic books, cards, action figures, but a first edition Mars Attacks card from 1962 in mint condition at auction in 2008 went for thirty six hundred dollars. That's not bad. No, it's not bad. No, no, that's that's pretty good for a trading card. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely is. But do you guys know how redneck aliens abduct people? No. With a tractor beam. Ah, oh, nicely done. That's good. That's good. Nicely done. You know, I opened a Mars bar once. I discovered Martians love gin. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I couldn't find very many um, space jokes, so you I just picked. You didn't look some... hard enough. They're everywhere. <laughs> Yes, uh, apparently you're out of here. this world. Yeah, see, there's another yeah. good one. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I just busted out the repertoire of jokes that I have saved on my little Excel spreadsheet, and I highlight them as we go. So um, right. I just came across my wife's Tinder profile, and I'm so angry about her lies. She's not fun to be around. <laughs> I like your wife. <laughs> yeah. I like her better than you. That's fine. <laughs> Yeah, Tune on, in next season for D is for divorce. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, my fiance has told me she has a stalker, and I've been following her for days, and I have not found him. <laughs> Nicely done. Best way to schedule a trip to Mars? Planet. Ah, oh, um, <laughs> Dark humor is like food. Not everybody gets it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So speaking of dark humor, <laughs> you uh, you guys know what the uh, the court case between the immigrant and the priest was called? <laughs> what? Alien versus Predator. Oh, nicely done. You okay, said so you, you brought dark humor into this. <laughs> I love it. Oh yeah. Let's, let's be real here. Inflation is out of control. Chocolate has really gone up in price. I bought a Milky Way, a Galaxy, and a Mars bar. It was astronomical. Okay. What is the worst combination of illnesses? What? Alzheimer's and diarrhea. You're writing but can't remember where. <laughs> I can we end it there? I, I have nothing else to say. No, no, I've got I got one that I love. All right. I love. What do you call an alien with no eyes? Alan. Alan. <laughs> yep. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming back and listening to this episode of the S4 podcast where we did M is for Mars Attacks. We learned a lot. We revisited a few old topics like uh, Boondock Saints is a classic and Roland Emmerich is a piece of shit. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you take nothing away from this episode. 
<laughs> Those are the two main points. Well, no, there's there's three things. They need to take us. They need to get on social media. They need to go to Facebook. They need to go to Twitter. They need to go to Instagram. Even go to YouTube. Search in Danger and Sarge or Danger and Sarge, some form of that combination, and you will come across us. Yes. So hit us up on all those platforms. Let us know what you think. If there's a, if there is a specific topic you'd like for us to talk about, let us know. And we'll make a really cool post and put hashtag Roland Emmerich sucks. <laughs> And you got to have at least one friend that likes this movie. So please shoot it over to them. Send this episode to them. And if you got an extra minute, uh, leave us a five-star review on whatever uh, social or whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. You know, that That'd would, be uh, nice. Yeah, that would be good. So from, uh, I would say all of us, but there's just three of us. So the few of us <laughs> at, at, uh, at the S4 podcast. I uh, hope you have a great day, great morning, great evening, whatever time you're listening to this. Fair play. All right. Later. Bye. It's over. Done. Done.